Let's pray and then we're going to launch into our focus this morning. So Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you that there's no two moments alike in your kingdom and your purposes. We thank you for this day. You knew this day. You knew those of us who would be here in this moment. Thank you for that sovereignty and that reality of your purposes that you are unfolding and accomplishing in us and through us when we see it and when we don't. And Lord, I pray this morning just for listening ears to hear what it is that your spirit is saying to us. Pray that you'd open up the eyes of our heart to see you. That we would be a people, as Paul declares, that boasts only in the cross of Jesus Christ, in your power and in your promise that we find as we look to you. May we see you more clearly that we might love you more deeply, we pray. We thank you for your word. Use it for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' mighty and wonderful name. Amen. Fantastic. Well, we're going to go to Romans 3. We're going to pick up this theme as we work through this particular book with this theme of all roads leading to wonder. We're not just here to gain more knowledge and theology, although that is a worthy pursuit in and of itself, but we're here to see more of Jesus. We're here more to uncover this reality and this wonder of his majestic majestic purposes of God through Jesus Christ, that as I prayed, we'd see him more clearly, that we'd love him more deeply, and that we'd shine ever brighter as lights in an ever-darkening world. So we began looking at perhaps where Paul was heading, and then we turned to what he entitles the gospel and the power of the gospel that is able to save. And then if you've read through the book of Romans... For me, it doesn't matter how many times I've read and studied and even preached messages through the book of Romans on many occasions. It doesn't matter how many times you embark on this journey. As you head into these first few chapters, it's a bit like walking into a hurricane. All of a sudden, it's like the power of the gospel and then bang, you find yourself in the midst of this incredible storm that is confronting, that's challenging, that turns things inside out and upside down. And if that wasn't your experience, then perhaps you need to go back and just read again and ponder in your own journey and walk with the Lord exactly what it is that Paul is unpacking. And the point is simply this, there's nothing nice and neat about the gospel. Like we want to put it in these little comfortable pre-packaged boxes. But it is this radical message of a God who put on human flesh, who was beaten and spat upon in a crown of thorns, blood, and ultimately his death on the cross. And then as he proclaims three words that we prayed into that will be our focus this morning, this radical reality. Three words in the English. It's only one in the Greek. It is finished. It's finished. What is it that he's come to accomplish? What is this incredible, radical reality of the gospel? And what does it mean for us? So we talked last week about this unfolding and unpacking of what we entitled the great human dilemma. 
Moralism says you can just work your way out. It'll be okay. Religion says you can climb your way out. But Paul unpacks in these few chapters this reality that is crystal clear that all nations, all people groups, everybody is trapped in sin and selfishness. That fundamentally the human heart and mind are broken. And there's this tragic progression as a nation, as a people without God suppress the truth and turn to idolatry and the inevitable conclusion of futility that then results. And I don't know if you saw the, uh, the Emmys this week, but uh, a Western society that publicly celebrates demon worship is what it was, makes light of it in the midst of primetime television. If that's not an indication that we are in a world that is in need of God, then I don't know what is. And so there's a seriousness to this. And of course, as we said as well, this is not a moment for us to look at the sin of others, but it's a window to our own soul to reveal the great human dilemma that all humanity, including us, is hopelessly trapped, that all mouths are silenced. Now, we did peek ahead last week just so we weren't left completely without hope, but that's where we're going to delve back in. So let's pick this up, Romans 3, verse 19. We covered this last week by way of review. He's talking about the law. He says, now, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Here's his conclusion, that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the place that we left last week. All mouths are silenced. There is no case for boasting in anything, in any works of the flesh, in any way that we could possibly find to work ourselves closer to God. And that human dilemma will then reveal and lead to the universal longing. Let's read on verse 21. It says this, but now, who's thankful for these moments in scripture? It says, but now, but that's not the end of the story. I'm just setting a scene here and I know there's that, that tension of, well, what happens next? What hope do we possibly have? And if you're asking that question, you're asking the right, <coughs> the right question. <coughs> Excuse me. But now, says Paul, but now, wait and see what happens. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, I love this phrase, just and justifier. The just God, but the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So what are we saying here? See, as, as I've mentioned, the, the human dilemma, it gives way to this universal longing. 
all the way since the beginning in the garden. We've been shamefully covering ourselves with fig leaves. We've known something is deeply and fundamentally wrong. There is this separation. And Paul, from the beginning of chapter 1, he talks about the gospel as the power of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So what, what is this righteousness of God? Well, God's righteousness in this passage, and we'll see it as we go through, but it plays a dual role. It's both here to show to the world the attributes of God. He is righteous. So the law was given not to reveal the righteousness of man, was given to reveal our sin, but our sin as separate and distinct from the righteousness of God. It's who he is. He is holy. He is a righteous God. So that's part of it. But it's also used as this gift of salvation that God gives to his people who would receive righteousness as their own through faith in Christ's death and resurrection on their behalf. So let's look at how that plays out. Verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. We've looked at the failings of the law, and he says, this is the good news. There is a righteousness. It's just not found through your own efforts. It's not found through your system, through adherence to the law. It's revealed separately. And in case there's any um, confusion as to what it is, it says, this is the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. So the righteousness of God is manifest apart from the law, although he says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now that's important because he's saying this is not an afterthought. This is not the, the fix-up plan for God trying to, to, to make the most of what's a bad situation. He's saying this has always been the intention. The law and the prophets was always to point us towards the ultimate fulfillment which was God's righteousness being made available apart from the law through faith in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is key for us to understand. And the, the tension here this morning is, you know, last week's sermon had its own challenges. The challenge for this particular sermon is there's probably more theologically that is written in this area and notion of the righteousness of God and justification than any other terms, except for maybe faith, which we'll get to next week, in the book of Romans. One, one scholar said there is so much here that even the most astute scholar could not climb nearly to its peak. There is so much here. I don't know if this is of any interest to you, but I had about 20 pages of notes that I've attempted to summarize in the three hours or so we've got left this morning to try and bring out some sense and notion of the importance, because this is critical in here. But here's the critical thought with righteousness. We've said it's separate from the law, and it is the free gift of God. So we'll go on, we'll talk about sanctification and how we live in light of it, but I want to make this clear from the beginning. Righteousness, it's not the scout's badge that you earn. It's not the list of your achievements. It's not the 17 times this week that you've prayed and you've ticked all the right boxes. That's his exact point. Saying there is a, is a righteousness. It's a gift of God. It's manifested separately for all those who would have faith. 
So that's the first part here. Then he goes on, second half of verse 22, and he's saying there is no distinction. That's made available, and it is needed by every single person, man, woman, and child. He says there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we touched on this last week, but just so we're all on the same page. So what Paul is saying here is we, the gospel has this leveling effect on every level. We're equal. There's no distinctions. We're equally created. It's, it's such an important reality in the society in which we live. To remember this, only the gospel gives inherent worth to every individual. Only the gospel. That's the only way we can ever arrive there. We are created in the image of God. Your life has purpose because he says it has purpose. Because he predestined you in his heart so that he might rescue and redeem you and bring you back to himself. We're equally created, but we're equally fallen. All of us have stumbled and fallen short. It doesn't matter if you're drowning in the top of the ocean or the middle of the ocean or the bottom of the ocean. There's, there's no categories of drowning. You and I are in need of rescue. But we're equally loved for God so loved the world. I mean, get your hand, your, your head around that, that God loves sinners. God, for God so loved us, not when we cleaned ourselves up. Maybe that's for someone here this morning. It doesn't matter what place you are in today. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the places you've been. What matters is the greatness of his love. He loves you and he wants to embrace you in the midst of that mess and clean you up. It's the second night. We're, we're equally loved and we're equally saved. There is no one for whom this gift does not, this gift of grace does not apply. There's no one for whom the blood is not sufficient. There's no one that the Lord looks at and thinks, well, maybe we need a second go, right? Maybe that's, I don't know. I don't know does it, there's no thought of that. The blood is powerful to save us. His gift of grace is equally applicable to all who would receive it by faith. That's what we've seen so far. So Paul has set up this scene of humanity is, is helplessly and hopelessly lost. And then all of a sudden comes on to the scene the just. What, what is going to happen? The only inevitable conclusion is judgment. And in fact, this, this part of it, we haven't even touched on this, but, but Paul is also, he's giving a warning. He's saying, you know, it, don't think that the wrath of God is, is not, is not going to come. We can do whatever we... Don't poke your fingers in God and think that judgment will never... Like God is a holy God. But he has made a way. The right and proper response is judgment. But instead, he came to make a way. And instead of finding us guilty, and this comes to the word for justification here... Instead of the guilty verdict, we are declared righteous. All of a sudden, through his work on the cross, he comes. He says, I know you. But because instead 
I have given my life in your place. I now declare that you are righteous, in right standing with God. That free gift that he gives to us. You're declared righteous. He gives us a new status. We've been forgiven. We're in right relationship. We're welcomed into his family. A new status, a new relationship, a new family, and a new future. And here's an important point for us to know, because we'll talk as we go on about the work of sanctification, of him cleaning us up, of living a life by faith, running into his purposes. But justification is an act. It is a moment. It is a declaration. It's not a work or a process. And it's not a hopeful destination. It is God's gracious, once-for-all verdict. His declaration of a person to be righteous in Christ, through Christ's death and resurrection, received by faith and therefore fully accepted by God. Now, I know I'm laboring the point here, but it's, it's so vital for us to grab. In fact, Luther... He called this the hinge of all Christian faith and doctrine. Everything else hinges on this reality. And certainly as Paul unpacks the book of Romans, we'll see this moment that everything has been leaning towards this. All this unveiling of sin and unrighteousness and wrath and judgment in steps Christ. And that everything after this is viewed in light of what Christ has done. From chapter 5 on, he says, Therefore, since you have been justified, everything else flows out of this place of what he has already done. And that's our call as believers is to grab a hold of that. This is not just the, the jump start to get us going. It's not just the, the entry door. This is the engine. This is the power of the life of the believer is to recognize to realize and to live in the reality of what that means for us. The finished work of the cross. Not what we do, not the hamster on the wheel, but what he has done. Not trying to work for the victory, but trying to live in the reality of the victory that he has already won for us. Now he goes on just to finish the passage and then I'll come back and just talk about What really is on my heart this morning? He says, we're justified by his grace, verse 24, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Interesting notion here, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, there's some other big words here. And if you want to do an interesting Greek study, look up this word propitiation. It's only actually used twice in all of the New Testament. And it certainly has this notion of a removal of guilt, but it's more than that. It's this public proclamation and demonstration of the undeniable, unfailing mercy of God. In fact, the other reference which you'll find, if you want to look it up in Hebrews 9.5, is a clear reference to temple imagery. One of the fascinating studies is to look at uh, some of the Old Testament symbols and allusions and how they reference and point us towards Christ. And you look, if you, if you study Exodus 25, is where Jesus talks about the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were these two angels, two cherubim, with their wings spread out. And they overshadowed what was called the mercy seat. 
And uh, God says this in Exodus 25, verse 22. He says, that's the place where I will meet with you from the mercy suite, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant. There is a place that he established called mercy. See, mercy was never an afterthought. Mercy was always Christ's plan and his purpose through the work of Christ. So there is this meeting place, there's this public proclamation and demonstration of Christ's mercy. And I love this picture. It's the reason I illustrated this morning. Is he said, look at the world around you. Look at your own futility of measuring up. And, and, and what do you find? Nothing but despair and hopelessness. But then in the same way, he says, look to the cross. And you cannot deny that there is this public proclamation and demonstration of the mercies of God, the meeting place of heaven and earth forever. That is the just and the justifier. That is the declaration that it is finished. Now, here's what I want to, or how I want to perhaps help us grab a hold of this and kind of apply, hopefully, some of the theology with a, a practicality and a, a power in our lives. We talked last week about this human dilemma. And I would suggest to us that it's very obvious as we look around that not only is there a human dilemma, but there is a universal longing. There's something that goes fundamentally to who we are as humanity. It's not just a, a theological principle. That, that's, that's wonderful. And we could talk about the nuances of atonement theory, and I resisted even dipping our toes there into traditional Lutheran perspectives and some of the new perspectives on justification, but very happy to have a conversation at any stage. Because there's, there's a rich theology around it, but it's more than theological principles. There is a reality to this human condition that we have this longing to be justified. We have this longing to be made right. We have this desire for our life to have validation, to have purpose and meaning. There's an author by the name of David Zoll, and he writes this book, Secularosity. He's a Christian guy. The title, the subtitle of his book is this. It says, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance has become our new religion, and what to do about it. Now, he puts forward this premise, and it's interesting to think about this, but he says this. He says that it is the normal human condition to have, in his own words, an obsession with righteousness. We might not use that term. He goes on and he says, although few of us actually go to church anymore, this religious urge remains, this feeling of enoughness, or more archaically, righteousness. That sense that our existence has to be validated. It's just now that we seek it elsewhere. Rather than coming to the place where we can actually be made righteous, we seek it in work, politics, technology, romance, fill in the blank. And this, this, is a, this is a conclusion. He says, listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, the loneliness, the exhaustion, the division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough, 
We believe instinctively, whether we acknowledge it or not, that were we to reach some benchmarks in our minds, then value, vindication, love, validity, etc. would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. Does that ring some bells? Do you see that around us? Perhaps you need another example. I came across a a book early this year, and I know I often recommend reading some books. This one I would not necessarily recommend reading, although some of you perhaps have. But who has come across Prince Harry's biography called Spare? Is anyone game enough to... Uh, oh, a few hands, a few hands. Well, to be honest, I saw it there, and you know they've filled the, uh, the news feed for most of January, and very rarely do I click on anything, so it didn't even register anything until I saw some of the statistics on how many copies of this book were sold. Did you know that it sold more than 1.43 million copies in its first day? That's across the US, Canada and Britain. Even in Australia it broke publishing records. So that figure marked the largest first day of sales for any non-fiction book ever published by Penguin Random House the world's largest publisher. The closest, the only one that came close was Obama's Promised Land, which had nearly half the sale. So it's this ridiculously popular book. And so I saw that and I thought, I don't know if anyone else did, I thought, well, what's in there that's so appealing? I might have a little bit of a look. Not to read all the gossip stories about the royal family, just want to clarify, although there's plenty in there if you, uh, if you do have some interest. But I was fascinated to understand why is it as a society we're so drawn to a character like Harry? And I think there's a few things, but even the title kind of gives away this, this notion of where he comes at from writing this book. And he didn't actually write it, by the way. It was ghostwritten. So it's actually brilliantly well written. It's, it's very engaging in terms of how it's written. But the title Spare comes from, as the book tells, this ongoing, long-running joke within the royal family that if there's two heirs to the throne, that the second one is the spare. That's your mission in life, is just to be the spare. You've got the, the heir of the throne, and then you've got the guy who, if he needs a heart transplant or a liver transplant, or he steps in. And so that's his mission in life. And apparently he was called from a young age the spare. I mean, so it, it is written to kind of tug your heartstrings a bit and to feel sorry for poor Harry. He's just, but, but that, would, that would do something to your psyche, wouldn't it, if you grow up with that um, particular name branded over you everywhere you go and in everything you do. But the interesting thing in there is it's, it's such a departure, and I think this is why people love him, from, say, his grandmother, Queen Elizabeth II, who lived this life of service and duty. Right the way from her coronation vows all the way through, she was known for this, this faithfulness to the system, if you like. That was her, her oath was to serve the people. And she lived it out. And I'm not trying to promote and put forward the, the British monarchy as anything particularly good or bad, just making a, a statement. Whereas he comes from a very different place. In fact, he calls the royal institution, like all institutions, in his own word, toxic. That's his word. It's all toxic. And he compares the taking of social roles, which he had to do many times in his life, as being like shaving gold off an ingot until nothing real is left. He says you must strip the institutions away or they'll strip you. 
And this is kind of, I thought, a quote that summarizes where he lands in this particular book and what he's trying to get across, but also why perhaps it's resonated, other than we all love a good tabloid now and then, especially when it comes to the royal family. But this is where he lands. He, he writes about all these externally imposed identities as this unending death loop, and this is his conclusion. Each new identity assumes the throne of self, but takes us further from our original self, perhaps our core self, the child. And so ultimately, this is, read it for yourself, make your own conclusions, but a book about a guy who stood up against the system. Now, it somewhat seems a little ironic to me that, you know, he complains about the press, but then sells his life to the press for $20 million. And he's happy to receive the benefits of the system while still criticizing it. But that, that particular point aside, he's the sort of character who promotes this kind of anti-system, anti-authoritarian. We must cut ourselves away and from anything. We must find ourselves. There is this deep longing in us to find value and worth and significance. I think that's what plays into the human psyche. And to be honest, there's a bit of gospel truth in there. The problem is his conclusion. Because he says, and therefore what we must do is we must look within. We must throw off and chop. We, We must build everything we can upon our fragile and futile and fleeting sense of self. We must put self back on the throne. And this is really where I want to land us this morning and we're going to join in communion. And thank you for being patient and listening through my review of Prince Harry's book, which I don't recommend you reading at all. We'll just delete that part from the podcast if we can later on. You see, there there is this inherent need in us. There is the greatest minds in the world with social media and everything else who are engineering and and playing that card as much as they can. But but it's true. There is this sense that we're not enough. We must validate our own existence. The world says there is something Lacking, there is this struggle for justification. Well, there's good news this morning. Because you don't need to look within you. That's not the answer. Instead, as Paul sets the scene, we look to the one who is both just and justifier. Although he looks at our sin and he says, you are worthy, there's no, there's no doubt that the, the most... Right and proper response is judgment, but instead he comes in our place to make a way. Instead of finding us guilty, he declares us righteous. He gives us a new status, a new relationship. He catches us up into the greatness and the grandeur of his eternal purposes and promises. So the question for us is, you know, how, how do we actually run well? How do we lead a successful and satisfying Christian life? What's, what's the answers to the longing of the human heart? I hope, if nothing else, this morning we've seen that it's not out there. And it's certainly not in here. It's that place where we come back to rest and to live and to run 
and to dwell in his great and glorious declaration that because of him, you are enough. In Christ, you have everything that you need. That we would rest in the proficiency and forever proclaim the proficiency of the finished work and all that he accomplished in the cross. Look at the worship team back up here. I think so often we struggle because it's kind of one foot in, it's one foot out. We buy into the world's narrative. We think, well, maybe, maybe I can rest a little bit. One foot here, one foot in some self-justification, one foot in working my way into some sense of my own purpose. And as we prayed for people at the end of worship, the great and glorious gift that the writer to Hebrews implores and exhorts and encourages us is that we live looking to Him. We look resting and living and standing upon that firm foundation. John Newton, who uh, wrote the original version, some would argue the best, original and the best, he said this, a single view of Christ will do you more good than pouring over your own wounds for a lifetime. A single view of Christ. So I'd love for us to join in communion. Um, if you this morning came in here and didn't receive the elements, we have our ushers at the back. Is there a spare? Thank you. A spare. Thank you. No pun intended. There's no spares in the kingdom. Your life has purpose. Your life has value. Your life has vindication. Your life has worth. Because of this. Because of this. So I want to turn our attention to the Lord before we join this morning. And I really want to bring us back to that place. I know we ended with communion last service as well. It just seems appropriate that we finish in this way. And there's really that, that proclamation in that phrase that I want to bring our hearts, our attention towards as we break bread and we drink from the cup. The one word in the Greek, the three words in the English, and the truth that it unveils to us, that it is finished. Forever there is a proclamation and a demonstration in the cross of Jesus Christ. That he has made a way. That the great divide has been bridged. That your life, he's declared, has value. It has worth. Not because of anything you've done, but because of the greatness of what he's done. He's the one who declares you worthy. 
He's the one who declares you holy. As by faith we receive his free gift of grace. So as we take the bread, we remember his broken body. This gospel that is so wondrous, so revolutionary, that we'll spend eternity unpacking the full weight of its truth. And all we can do is come with thankful hearts, in remembrance, in recognition, and building our lives in that place of amazing grace. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Let's take and eat this morning, family, in remembrance of him. As we drink from the cup, you know, so often we remember this reality that as his blood was shed, drink from the cup that it's his blood washes us clean cleanses us of our sin makes us right and yet as well this is a proclamation of his covenantal faithfulness as believers if ever we if we struggle and wrestle the goal is not to look down and in, it's to look up. To see that reality of a God whose faithfulness prevails, whose purposes never fail. So let's remember that faithfulness of our God. And drink from the cup together this morning. As you finish, could I ask you just to stand? Just going to pray for us. As always, this morning, the altar is open. The prayer teams are ready. As I said earlier, the sense that I had this morning for our time together was that reality and that recognition of the finished work of the cross, the purpose that it proclaims, and the power that it makes available. And if there's any sense this morning that, that you know that there is that place of amazing grace, perhaps you've stepped off that path, perhaps you're in need just of a, a fresh touch of the Lord. Of course, if there's any other prayer needs, you're more than welcome to come to the front this morning, but particularly in that area, the power and the passion to run again, a life that is resting and relying upon his finished work. So Father, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, all that you desire to do. We come as a people who are just hungry to know more of you. 
So come, Holy Spirit. Pray that you'd minister to each of our hearts. Pray, Lord, that you'd rest upon each and every one of us here. The light of your glorious gospel and grace would draw us closer to your heart. Pray this morning would be a morning where we, we know what it is to run afresh, to cast aside the things that entangle us, to hear the, uh, the choirs of angels and the saints of the, the ages cheering us on. So we press in to see the fullness of your kingdom come and your will be done. We pray that in Jesus' name. So we've got the prayer teams just to come out now. We're just going to, I think, conclude with a bit of worship. But if you, you'd like to come, you need prayer, now's the time. You don't need to delay. Come and receive prayer. Bless you this week. Look forward to gathering again next Sunday.